Okay, we're in a KSI huddle. Time for a KSI huddle. What have we got? Been a big day, been a big few days, hasn't it? Basketball is awesome. Well, someone was about the basketball enjoyed it. First of all, she's John. John coaching or John playing? Because it's like this <laughs> amazingness in both. Yeah, both. But um, in particular, how you have to break down the technique into really simple things. Yes. Just let one sort of experiment himself, reach his own conclusions. Um, I can take that back to the basketball kids and implement it. It was a phenomenal example of what we do. And I tell you, I'm preaching the converted, but we teach holistically. We don't just deal with the physical qualities. We deal with all athletic qualities. We deal with anything that needs to be dealt with to help an athlete fulfill their potential. And within technical development or skill development, we, we operate along a certain um, philosophies and guidelines and principles. And John enacted those today. You saw them in action. And you know, there's a way to do it. It's not just the fact that we've got a, a principle or philosophy approach to it, but it's also how you execute it. So it was a really good role model of execution of that whole concept of technical models and, and, and changing technical models. So, um, and obviously it's on video, so those that weren't actually at the court can, can watch it on that section hopefully. A little bit of rain and a few other things happen, but um, yeah, it was a great, a great example by John, and we had a good student there, and we had, we had a good little athlete there who's, who is a technically based athlete. He's and he's a technical focus. Well, it was a great opportunity. Yeah. And that, that can go beyond basketball too. As I said, you apply that. We apply that to helping everyone. So people say to me, and how can you train some athletes in some different sports? Well, it's really simple. Get the information off them, apply it to the process that we've developed, and, and then the outcome is then driven through the communication skills. So I've, I've done that process with more sports than I can remember. And I've helped athletes you know, win, win things, like those little round things that they get Olympics. Um, on the basis of that, as well as in other cases on the basis of physical changes, but in some cases it's the basis of changing their technical model. Uh, it's, not a, it's a side of case either people don't get to see, they don't understand, because it's beyond their, their realm of thinking, I think, I believe. They don't understand how you know, people who started out as physical coaches have entered the realm of changing everything, uh, helping out in you know, a very holistic manner. But, uh, to help an athlete win an Olympic medal because you change their technical model is, is you know, it's a very rewarding thing to do. And you can do that now with athletes at any age, in any sport, at any level, in any country, in any of the many genders people identify with. That's you know, kind of a joke. Good lady not for doing Okay, great. Any other questions or feedback? You can go, Todd, you don't have to be shy. <laughs> when you're park stretching me this afternoon, you made a comment. Or oh, didn't make anyone jealous, I just told you. <laughs> you made a comment and you asked, have you had any hamstring tears? Is there a reason behind it? Well, I, I've been reasonably impressed with the flexibility of demonstrating to you. I'm assuming it's a, it's a fairly recent advancement, or we've just been reasonably it's worked probably flexible. We've worked on it since. Um, Finding your, your work. That's what I said. So I've seen that you've advanced because yeah. I wouldn't expect you to be like that pre KSI. Yeah, no. uh, the first six months, um, I think I've said the same thing about John. The first six months, I, I was stretching way too hard. You didn't understand it? Yeah, yeah, I, I had optimised the outcome. Yeah, that's right. So when people say, yeah, I tried stretching and it didn't work, you're like, well, 
there was a time when, when athletes tried strength training and it didn't work. And they, all went, they all gave it up and went back to non-strength training. Well, what is strength training? You know, if they were doing bodybuilding methods, well, that's probably why it didn't work. You know, if they were doing extreme powerlifting methods, that's probably didn't work for their sport, generally speaking. So it's not just, I did stretching. So you, you learn how to now stretch and I can see the changes. Um, so I, I thought that you were, you, 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 I could see that you advanced in a way that, uh, at a level that I normally see between, say, level four and level five. Usually people come at level four and they look around the room and they're embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's normal. And as a result of that, they come back next year a lot better. Yeah. But you already, I can see you'd already a lot better, but in the area of your hamstring, um, you know, there was probably more types there, put it generally speaking, than, than, than the other scripts. It looked like you, you'd probably struggle a little bit with the hamstrings, relatively speaking. Yeah, they're, they're probably the more recent things. They're, they're, they're pretty poor. Cool. Yeah, and what people understand is hamstrings aren't really hamstrings. Hamstrings are, are messengers for the nervous system. Uh, people don't really get that, and it's, a, it's a, one of my, you know, people say I'm a bit of a, a bit of a fringe dweller, and I come up with these concepts, and people throw a lot of rocks, eggs, and nasty words at me, and then 10 to 20 years later, everyone's saying, yeah, yeah, we always knew that. Of course. What? Ian King came up with it 20 years ago, and got hit over the head for coming up with it. No, we always knew that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the hamstrings are, 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 are poorly judged. So I suspect that maybe you've had a little bit of nervous irritation, you've had a little bit of sciatica now in the back, whether you were aware of it or not, you've had a little bit of impingement, you've probably had a little bit of interior yeah. rotation of the pelvis, yeah. you've probably come from a quad dominant history, surprise, 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 and therefore your hamstrings have been tight in burden commas. Yep. Um, definitely for the, um, the nerve irritation, no tears for nerve irritation. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Now nerve irritation is just an early stage of a tear. Yeah. So the only question for me is how you got to that level. Yeah. I can sense that you had had a history of nervous irritation uh, into the hamstrings, uh, but it's just how far it had gone. Yeah. That's, it's you know, it's no, no different than a young young uh, athlete who's just made, made it through to the senior ranks. Recently I met him for the first time, within a few minutes I said to him, how's your, how's your groin going? He looked at me like, oh. I said, have you had any groin injuries? And, well, no. But when I ask that question, there's only two possibilities. And everybody here with advanced level knows what I mean. When I ask a question like that, it only means two, one of two things. What does it mean? Or it's something that's happened in the past. Or it's going to happen. It's yeah. on, if it hasn't happened, it's going to happen unless you change your direction. Yeah, so I, I sort of sense that since I answered no, that there's something I can do about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I, when I normally put that out there to people who don't have any idea of changing direction, it just give them a bit of thought and then, well, why didn't you ask me that question? So I'm not actually telling them anything, I'm just stimulating some thought. And it sounds like it's effective in your case. But I think you're heading in a good direction, so I'm not as concerned by it. But if you go into an intense sport at this point in time, you'd be still at risk. Yeah. yeah but better off than you were before. Did you enjoy being my, uh, my bitch? <laughs> <laughs> so, just to clarify for the audio, he was my stretching partner. <laughs> he was smiling a lot. Yeah, so, uh, he wasn't groaning and moaning as much as uh, it's a, it's a pleasure machining. <laughs> Um, so, were you, did you say that from a weight perspective, or did you feel something when you when you pressed? Well, the both. Because length is an absolute, but but quality is relative. So it's not just about the end result; it's about the the, the, the onset of resistance, the end point of resistance, and then the feeling through. Yeah. So you know, you know, when you get rich, you know what a good range feels like. 
So you kicked in there last year for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, there's a saying that we have, which I won't say on the audio, but something about it. It's very tight. Yeah. Something to do with the monastery, but that's nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. That's about as far as I'd go. I wouldn't even have gone that far before 2016 when Don told me that it's okay to, to speak about it. Throw a good locker in there and then call that to the How did you um, develop partner stretching? Because it's so effective and I enjoy it as well as, you know, getting to stretch myself, I enjoy doing it. Mm. Um, so how did you come up with that and where, where was it? So I, I probably have to credit martial arts to, for, for an early inspiration. I mean, very early on I was exposed to that in a rudimentary way, but nevertheless it was, it was an eye-opener to me, so I had that experience early. And then when I started working with athletes in high volume and at a high level, I started implementing it as, uh, well, how can, I, how can I help them even more? And so I've really, really advanced it then. So the way I do it, the way I teach it, uh, is, a, is a product of, of a lot of practice and, and innovation. Like I've got some serious strategies there that are you know, truly unique. And, and I've seen my influence in stretching come through in a lot of areas. There are people, who, athletes who have been with me any time in the last 30, 40 years, whatever they say, I saw some of them see your influence in it. It's not as big as it will be in the future because there's still a resistance to it, but there is some uh, imitations uh, of what I'm doing. But nobody's really kind of understands that somebody's what you've got exposed to. We don't, we don't popularise, we don't promote them, we don't market it to any great extent, but yet there's a lot of uh, intellectual property in that, and it's, it's inspired through martial arts but developed through uh, personal innovation. So there's a lot of athletes walking around the planet who've had that opportunity to be my partner, or even groups. There's a great photo, because pre, pre uh, 1990s, pre, pre late 1990s, there was not much media about Like If we had a picture without an old clipping of a newspaper, athletes weren't taking photos up until the late 90s. Like we just didn't have records like that. But I stumbled upon one day a, a, a crumple up old newspaper clipping from the early 90s in a South African newspaper where our, our team had got off the, off the plane in um, like Johannesburg or Durban, I can't remember, um, and we're out there overall, doing partner stretching to recover from the trip. Unheard of, still unheard of today. And that shot was taken, what was that, 25 years? That really 25 years? And it was a crumpled up bit of newspaper, and that's why I did it. So yeah, I've been implementing for a long time, and athletes have really got to do it. But you know, to implement with teams, you've got to have a certain uh, communication style and ability to control the, the, the jungle. But yeah, it is incredibly beneficial, but you also have to know when you implement because you can over-service and you can disempower. But that's another topic we have. So we have, we have a little bit reticent of showing you some things. And in fact, we don't show you everything at once because until, you're, until you are ready to understand the case of philosophies, you will, you will misuse information. Does that make sense? Like if I taught you certain things today, you go ahead and do it out of context. And, and when you do things out of context, it doesn't serve the world to its fullest and it doesn't serve the end user. It disempowers. And our entire Western world's service professions are based on disempowering people and creating dependence. We create dependence. And we are strongly against that. So my approach, to healing, to therapy, whatever you want to call it, uh, physically, is uh, a independence approach. 
It's an empowering approach. We empower people to understand what's happening in the bodies, to solve the problems, sometimes with some guidance when it's a new problem. But if you took that stuff that we start to teach you as you move up the ranks and misused it, um, it's, just, it's just sad to see. So that's why we hold it so tight. What, what we do is so unknown in the world that it will stay that way, hopefully. I call it Kung Fu before Bruce Lee. Because everybody said Bruce Lee, wow, it was great, you know, he's amazing. And I'm not discrediting Bruce Lee, but I, I had exposure to Kung Fu and it was called uh, Secret Chinese Boys Business. When, China, when Chinese young men would golf and they wouldn't let the Caucasian round eyes know what they were doing. And, and I think there was a special time, you know, I think it was in some ways better off for that. Now, yes, we've allowed now Caucasians to go and do the Kung Fu style, and that's great. But basically, you know, there is a risk when it's bastardised or commercialised. And what we teach is not done. That's not happened. You know, a lot of my low-level information has been plagiarised and bastardised and commercialised for the personal gain of certain people. And it's not fulfilled its potential in the marketplace as a result of that because the intention wasn't pure enough. The stuff that you get exposed to as you come through the high-level race education program has not been... Um, the, 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 what they call the corporate veil, the intellectual property veil, has not been penetrated. We want to keep it that way. Because the minute a, a commercially driven person gets their hands on it, it will destroy it in the world. So a long answer to a short question. Yeah, you just you just start to see some stuff. It was fun, wasn't it? It was so much fun. So much fun. Probably you're learning and seeing stuff you didn't even know we did. You know what I'm saying? When you yeah. came around a bit longer, you realised some of the stuff that you you didn't even know that we did that stuff. Oh, you know, you know we do it, but then you don't know how to do it, which is not normal. That's the next process. Like, it doesn't stop. And I can tell you, even 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 uh, coaches that have been with me for in excess of a decade, they will pick up something every single time. They'll see something that might be new or they didn't see before. The innovation continues. The refinements continue. We just don't publish it. We don't talk about it. We don't. Right, so as an athlete, uh, I would like to compete. So I'm wondering what is the top process of going into competition? Because uh, when I ask like, my mates, they just say, oh yeah, you just sign up, and then just go get some experience. I was wondering if um, I should run, like, run through certain things to be more well prepared. So, Isfian Bayi, uh, the Hungarian um, who immigrated to Canada uh, and who went on to become a new one of the world's leading experts on long-term periodization, or multi-periodization, or long-term athlete development, which is, but I like to use because it's become a bit of a popular word, no one actually did it, but they just talked about it. You want to start studying and become very familiar with these concepts because there's phases of competition where you, you're competing not to win, you're competing to get used to competing. So yeah, I would say from, from what I'm hearing from you that you, you're in that phase. So you, you, you're trained to compete. In other words, you, 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 you're just getting the experience of competition. I'll give an example. If you see a young person in a contact sport, a combat sport, before they had realised what fear is, a young person, say a young person on there, they've got the head guard on them, and they've got fairly big uh, punching bits on or whatever protective gear they're wearing, and they're hitting each other when they're young. They think that's normal. So they're not trying to win, you're actually just getting them used to being hit in the face or hit around the body. Does that make sense? Yeah. So 
if you did that to an older person, their, their fear would take over so fast. It would inhibit their, uh, their uh, skill development. So don't go and frighten yourself in competition. You know, boxers historically have done this through the boxing managers, where they've picked their targets, their opponents, very skillfully. You know what I'm saying? So it's your job to ensure that you, you don't go to competition that, that over, over, uh, overawes you to the point where you, you're not able to just practice and enjoy. You know, you compete, to, compete to experience and don't compete to win and don't go and scare yourself. It's, if you blow an athlete out in the early stages, they will never fill, fill their potential. And that is a, is a place to all sports, you know, whether it's motorsports, you know, like the adventure sports or the high risk sports. You can really blow someone in the water if you are progressive with their competitive experiences. So it will be, I suggest, you're very familiar with that. But read, go to the source, don't read him, um, don't read copies of the original. <coughs> In, um, in team sports, and on, at half time when they go in and sit down and get some water and then there's a chat, is there strategies to get them sort of fired up or rewarmed up again or going into the second half? I'm sure there's psychological techniques. And Absolutely. But I'm trying to talk about the ones that you use commonly. The ones that you use commonly. Are fear-based ones. So typically, coaches will raise their voice, um, kick the ball, bash the ball, rip the door off the hinges. All these strategies. How long do you think that sort of approach works for? Not very long. Not very long. So athletes who go down that, so coaches go down that path, don't have a very long time frame at their clubs. You know, it, it might work. So I said, but the public will expect it, and the, and the sporting commentators love to talk about it. You know, there's some famous instances in all sports where certain coaches did certain things. They might have gone there and ripped the head off a chicken or had a door with the hinges unscrewed so they just ripped it off and looked like that they were really you know, angry and strong. Like there's these famous incidents in all sports. But that's, that's the pop, popular perspective of the media, popularising the perspective. The, the best coaches get a lot of change in very few words. And you need to be very um, judicious with your use of, of, of uh, aggression or anger from coaches because you can't raise your voice too often. And uh, the way we teach is it's more about self-discovery and self-led discovery. So the, the question is pretty small, okay, what's happening? What's going on out there? And they're going to tell you what's going on out there. The main purpose of, of a half-time break or a quarter-time break is just an opportunity to change the momentum. It's like an expanded time out of basketball. That's what you want to do, use it for. So you basically can wipe the slate and start again. So there are a number of strategies I use when we're ahead, and there's a number of strategies I use when we're sense. So there's a lot of strategies you can use, but I'm telling you the strategies that most are using are ineffective long term. But be in the sheds, you know, be in the dressing rooms with a lot of sports, with a lot of coaches, and get the experience of hearing how they conduct themselves. And then you'll be able to say, okay, well, I don't think that's a very effective long term strategy. Because the coach has a very important role to play, but it's typically overplayed. So I'm not telling you everything because it's too complex a subject to do in two or three minutes. And so strategies for getting them going again as in warming them up or getting them... Because they're sort of after me said, well, well, there's a combination of physiological understanding as well as psychological understanding. So the physiology is pretty simple. They've gone cold, they're sitting down, they start to realise they're hurting. You with me? Yeah. 
fact, then there's the strategies to deal with, with the physiology, and that includes taking account the temperature of the room and, and, and the coldness of them. You know, there's a lot of strategies you can use to prepare them for going back out from a physiological perspective, and there's strategies from a, from a psychological perspective. And a good coach can make a big difference. But a good coach who takes credit when they win and blames the athletes when they lose, when they lose is not some model. I want a coach that's invisible when, when the credit is there and stands up when the, when the blame is really reduced down. So a giveaway sign from a coach at the press conference is when they're losing, so it's my responsibility to end the story. Never throw an athlete on the bus. But when their athlete's winning, they, you, go, you go into hiding and just let the athlete stay. And I can tell you it's a rare trait. I can name quite a few coaches who do the opposite thing. Yeah. I remember one coach was nicknamed Planet Reebok. It was an era where Reebok was a sponsor, and Reebok's marketing campaign was about Planet Reebok. And it was you know, all about the coach. The athletes knew that it was all about the coach. That's what the name meant. They called him Planet Reebok because he was, was a very um, self centered coach. And athletes knew it. So it was not a good look. I have a question. What's your philosophy on attachment to an outcome in sport? So, again, maybe going back to long-term athlete development, you have the process yeah. and the outcome. That's exactly what I'm getting yes. at. Yeah. And at the early stages of development, you have to detach from the outcome and focus on the process. Now, as you were doing your coaching today in the basketball environment, I was saying those exact words to them. I was saying to the coach on the side, look, that was excellent. It didn't go in, but it didn't matter because the process was, was what we were looking for. So we reward the process. The athlete, the, athlete, the parents, some coaches over-focus on the, on the product. We want to focus on the process at the early stage of time. Now, let's say you're at the peak of your career. You know, you go to the next World Championships, you, you're a professional in the Super Bowl, whatever it is. Now, the reality is the product is pretty important. But by then, you should have it in place. But if you focus on the product too early, you will never fulfill potential. So it's really important to teach everybody to de-emphasize. And that means emotionally detaching from it and, 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 and ensure that your body language is that. Because if you're like, oh, oh, I mean, I've been on the oval with eight-year-olds where the coaches roam from the side of the field is audible two miles away for eight-year-olds when they fail to execute. Like, they, they have no future with that attitude. You, you, you know, great effort. It's never a negativity on them product. And then what about the psychology, um, let's go both ways, after an outcome? So let's say psychology after a loss of, a, of like the Super Bowl, like yes, yes, yes. and psychology of what a coach does after a, a win, or their, their own psychology. There is lessons in all this. There's more lessons in losing than winning, but the interpretation of the loss. So I've seen coaches on one on both ends of the continuum. I've seen coaches lose and look like everything's great. Now I don't need them to be negative towards the athlete, but if I don't see some sort of to be blood pissed off nature internally from a major loss, I've got a problem with that. So I've been with coaches who have lost some pretty big stuff. And they've woken up the next morning and think they've, like, they went to occasion to walk the day before. So that's one end of the team. The other end of the team are people who, who want to commit suicide as a coach or want to rip the athletes' heads off. 
So the, the, the process is pretty similar, just the stakes are higher. But the lessons need to be learned. Yeah. Uh, it's a coach's responsibility, but blaming the athlete is not the one. Personally, uh, and I'm being a little bit straight with you, mm -hmm. don't talk about this publicly, I, I have no time to go into play from losing. Go into play from losing? Playoff and losing. Oh. I have no time for whatsoever. I go to a championship, I will win. That's it. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. And, and if, what, if, the, if that was not to occur, and that's a 20% list for me, I am so, so pissed off. But I don't show it to, to the athletes. I, I find a, a way to take that frustration into the solution. But it, it really comes down to the expectations. If, if the coach is, wow, I've just gone to the playoffs, we didn't win. But it's given me a three year extension on the contract. That's not a good coach. And that's what the difference is. You know, if, if the coach was so committed to winning, they would never be comfortable about that. Now, I know there's only one winner and one loser when it's an A versus B situation. But I don't want to be that uh, It comes down to values. Some people just want to be involved, and some people are completely committed to winning. And, and the person completely committed to winning at the elite level. The person who's just happy to be involved will be the loser. And I, I've got this great saying I say, if you said to a person in, in, in a sporting environment at, at their level, if you said to them, you've got two choices. If you knew that you were going to lose, but you can stay here, or if you knew that quitting and walking away, they would win as a result of that, which would you do? Do you understand that? Yeah. How many coaches would walk away from half a million to three three million dollar contract? And be on the front page of the newspaper once a week, or the back sports page once a week. The, 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 it's pretty rare. My attitude is okay. If we can't win, I don't want to be here. I'm only going to be here if I really believe we've, we've got the circumstances. And I don't mean the best players on the but the philosophy is the attitude. It's the right leadership from from the CEO down. You can you can you know what's going to win. So I've walked away from a lot of sporting situations, and I've never, um, off the top of my head, to best my knowledge, we've never. I've never been off track with that. So I've had best teams in, in, in the world, best teams in the hemisphere, and I said, no, this, the direction they're going to take something away, I'll walk away. And it's just being um, fulfilled. So that's my approach. But I, I, I'm very, very committed to winning, and I, I relate to coaches as are. Now, winning one championship every 20 years is not my idea of success. Okay, so we're going to go down the time you're going to be. Appreciate it. We will see you in the next